Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello? Hello. Could I please speak with David Reef? This is he, Paul. I'm here. David, what a pleasure to have you on the phone. Thank you so much for taking my call, and thank you for being part of the quarantine tapes. I'm really delighted that you could find the time. Speaking of time, what have you been up to in the last three months, or differently put, how have you been living this moment of quarantine? (laughs) Well, uh, first of all, I got the virus, so that was all of April. Oh, dear. Uh, oh, pretty dear. Much. Uh, I didn't have it bad, badly enough. The case wasn't severe enough to be hospitalized, but it was quite severe enough. Thank you very much. It's very funny. I said to a friend that, you know, I spent almost 20 years as a war correspondent, but it never occurred to me I might die of asphyxia in my own home. Uh, but uh, it's actually considerably better, I think, to take a bullet in the head. Um, but out of the three months I, I missed, one of them to the virus itself. Apart from that, I think I'm doing what everybody is doing, which is alternating between befuddlement and anxiety. I I mean, I don't find it there. I know a couple of people who seem to have actually in some bizarre way enjoyed it. They don't have to dress up anymore. Women, a couple of women I know have told me that, you know, it's a relief not to have to put on makeup, uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, most people I know, I think, feel more or less of all genders, uh, inclusively, feel more or less the same, which is maddened by this. Because, particularly if one's intelligence, I think, is interactive or, or dialectical, if you have to, in some ways, if, it, if your intelligence is a function of your interaction with people. I don't know if poets are doing better since. That's less true for poets, I think. But I find it, you know, sure, I talk on Zoom with people and and the rest of it, but it's not the same. And I doubt I'll ever be convinced it will be. I mean, of course, there are lots of issues, political issues and social issues about the lockdown. Uh, but I'm, but you asked about my own personal feeling, and that sort of, in a rather banal way, describes it, I guess. Not really banal, uh, but but it does describe the moment you haven't. I'm, of course, very sorry that you contracted the virus and and relieved that it wasn't severe in your ca- in your case. I, I don't think I've spoken with anybody yet uh, in these fifty and some uh, quarantine tape moments who have contracted the virus, and and well, it it must be it must be terrifying in many ways. It is terrifying because you don't think you're going to get another breath. I mean, it's in my case, it was the classic form about, about feeling that I didn't know how many how long I could breathe for. Uh, there, of course, you know, COVID-19 is such a protean disease. You, you know, it, it, other people say it might be vascular and, uh, and other things. So, 
I, I suppose I just had one form of it. But anyway, it's behind me. Whether it's actually true that one is has some immunity or not seems quite unclear. It's, but, uh, it's, it's unclear, you know, I've spoken now to doctors as well, as you know, and I think uh, yep. the, the befuddlement, as you as you use that word, is uh, among people who are in the know, so to speak, and also people who are just reading, such as myself, the newspapers and listening to people talk about it. I think there's such a, a deep level of... Um, yeah, befuddlement and and perhaps just ignorance as to how to overcome this moment. But you're not and, you're not ignorant about everything at all. And um, it, I want to speak to to uh, your reactions and your knowledge as someone who has thought a, a very great deal about memory and and forgetting. What do you make of the recent removal, which happened today again, of con, of Confederate monuments? I think the Confederate monuments issue is a very special one because if you, I mean, when compared, say, to cases where, like Churchill or like Gandhi, and as you probably know, and, and people don't know, people know about the controversy over Churchill statues, what they may not know is that there have been large moves in West Africa to remove statues of Gandhi and remove his name from public places because of his anti-black racism. So, I mean, those to me are hard cases. The, the Southern, the Confederate images are not for a, a wide variety of reasons. First of all, I mean, historically, what seems to have happened, I have written about this, is that, you know, the Union, the Federal Army won the war, but the Confederates, to a very large extent, won the post-war. Right. And if you, when these statues were erected, many of which weren't erected immediately after the war, went after all the South, some period until it was repealed by President Hayes for rather corrupt political reasons, nothing to do with really with ideology, you know, ended the Reconstruction. You know, the majority of these Confederate uh, flags and monuments to Southern generals and officers of various kinds are built between about 1880 and the 1920s, which is the time of the, as it were, the toughening of the apartheid system, to use a modern word, in the American South. These things weren't built one minute after the war. They're part of an ideological effort to to symbolically solidify white supremacy. And as far as I'm concerned, anyway, the idea that a defeated rebel army, even if it was, had been more, had been less palpably unjust, and you can't think of a more unjust cause than fighting in the name of slavery. But even if it had been another cause, even if there had been a secession for other reasons, that a, that monuments to the secession would be all over the region of this, where the secessionists, I mean, you'd find that ludicrous in any other country. Can you imagine if the Nigerian government permitted statues to the Biafran secession leadership to go up in, in southeastern Nigeria? Can you... I mean, the whole thing is is absurd, except that the South, in some ways, the Confederacy, lost the war on the battlefield and won the war of memory. So much so that as there are all these military bases of, again, the Federal Army 
which are named after rebellious generals, the most obvious being uh, the one that's being uh, debated right now, which is the airborne uh, headquarters, Fort Bragg, right. uh, which after a cavalry general named Braxton Bragg. And, you know, this is, uh, this is, it's an absurdity in historical terms. And of course, it's an affront to the descendants of those people who the, 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 the federal army, or at least Lincoln, wanted to uh, free. I'm not saying the war started such noble reasons on the part of the North, but with the Emancipation Proclamation, the war aim of the North became to to end the slave regime. And, you know, I, I, it seems to me these statues, these Confederate flag battle flags over state houses, I mean, these things should have come down ages ago. They should have never been permitted to be put up in the first place. And, you know, I don't have, I don't see why one needs, I mean, I think there are other statues and commemorations where things are much, much more ethically complicated. But frankly, I don't think it's any more ethically complicated than taking down the, you know, the, the Nazi street names in Germany or the Stalinist names in Russia. It just seems to be just a very, a very modest amount of restoring the ethical balance of things. There's nothing murky. Um, there's nothing murky with doing that. What's interesting to me, also, I mean, I, I asked you about the Confederate monuments, but now it's a, uh, it's happening around the world. I, I read that in Bristol they removed a, a, a statue. In London yeah. they removed a statue. Uh, this yeah. is some, this is something that I know uh, is of interest to you in in a broad and sometimes. Uh, oh. abstract way, but now it's extremely concrete. I mean, you write about yeah. this quite quite brilliantly. I must say to our listeners, they should all go out and get your book in praise of forgetting, uh, where you where you talk about about issues that pertain to this, and you 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 say in in modified ways many times that uh, um, memory is a species of morality. Uh, that memory is a species of morality is one of the more unassailable pieties of our age. I, l I love the way you phrase that. How so? We have we now live in societies where the, and it partly has to do with the relevance and influence of the human rights movement, uh, that, which is, you know, the reigning secular religion of progressive people in the world, um, for better, probably for better and for worse. <laughs> It has no. I said for worse because it has no economic vision whatsoever. You know, you have a vision of rights divorced from a notion of how to reform the economy. I mean, the human rights movement has wants there to be less inequality, but what what economic system are they proposing? And then you ask them that, and they say, "Well, you know, that's sort of not our job." But if you're, but it is an ethical system. It is an ideology. Human rights and. And it should be judged with the same severity as any other ideology. But as far as memory goes, I think there are many situations in which memory is the right choice for a society to make. What I insist on, though, is that memory is not by definition moral and, and forgetting. In the sense, by the way, when I say forgetting, I don't mean forgetting in the literal sense, that's neurologically largely impossible. Right. I mean, for what Nietzsche called active forgetting, by right. which he meant 
public silence, basically. And I think sometimes that's preferable. For example, if you favor, if you believe that not all good things go together, that uh, you believe in what the philosophers call incommensurability, which in effect says some good things are in opposition to each other. Now, you know, a lot of people who probably listen to these wonderful programs of yours probably do think all things, good things go together, but I am not one of them. I think, I think Isaiah Berlin and other sort of, you know, social democratic or liberal, liberal in the North American sense, philosophers of that type, Bernard Williams, others had it right when they said that all good things don't need other. Indeed, they can be in opposition. So the obvious one is the one you hear in the marches, which is no justice, no peace. Well, that may work here, and that may be a slogan that's coherent in U.S. terms, but say it's not necessarily coherent in a war. Uh, the ex- examples I give in my little book, and in praise of forgetting, are Northern Ireland and Israel-Palestine. In both cases, it seems to me, neither side is likely to win a decisive victory in which its version of events can be imposed. The way, say, in South America, the fall of the dictatorships in Chile and in Argentina and in Uruguay, less in Brazil, unfortunately, meant that, you know, there was some consent, popular consensus, not absolute, doesn't mean there weren't sympathizers to the dictatorships who remained in, in all three of the countries I mentioned, but, but there was a widespread consensus that dictatorship had been a bad thing and that it it should be repudiated by the state, by the democratic state. But what do you do in Israel-Palestine? No side is going to win that war. I mean, barring some extraordinary event, which seems to be quite improbable. So imagine for the sake of argument that there were an Israeli-Palestinian peace accord that both sides could live with. I'm not talking about Jared Kushner's uh, preposterous, surrender terms to the Palestinians. I'm talking about a deal that the, a majority of Palestinians, both in Palestine and in the diaspora, could accept. You can't tell me that the Israeli memories of the founding of the State of Israel and Palestinian memories of the Nakba, both literal memories, because after all, there are still some people old enough and to I'm, remember yeah. happened. But I'm also talking about you know the memory that culturally transmitted, which isn't memory in the neurological sense, but is what they call collective memory, uh, which is, you know, the, in a sense, the, the version of events become the dominant view in communities. Imagine, for the sake of argument, you had this peace deal. You could not, you can't reconcile the view that 1948 was the founding of our country that we had hoped for for so long, and the idea that this was the, you know, the most terrible day in the history of the Palestinian people, the Nakba. So I don't see how a peace deal uh, can be made where people don't agree, have to, in effect, agree to disagree, which means public forgetting. You already see it, by the way, in Northern Ireland. And you speak, uh, and you speak about it uh, very interestingly in terms of Spain, where you speak about the Pacto de Olvido, um, which you see as a, a very instructive model and example. 
But I'm wondering, David, in a sense, what so many people are calling for now and what seems to be needed at this moment is quite the contrary in this country, no? Yeah, it may be the right decision in this country. I, I mean, and indeed in Imperial Europe. I mean, the statue of that slaver, Colton or Colson or whatever, I know Bristol quite well. Uh, I mean, quite well. I've been there quite a number of times. And of course, for decades, people in Bristol have agonized over this wretched statue. And it's quite fine as far as I'm concerned that people finally, perhaps they could have found it slightly less violent way, but then they've been trying peacefully for 30 years to do this, to get rid of the statue, and and somehow it never happened. So I, I, I find it difficult to blame them for, for uh, I don't consider that a hard case either. I mean, it's slightly different in the sense that it, it's more a function of historical complacency than a political program as the erection of these monuments to General Lee and the, the decision, the, the way that the United States military ended up using the names of Southern generals for its bases, whereas you'd think those were the people who should be viewed as disgraces to the uniform because they were rebels, they were, they were traitors. So, I mean, I don't think that's what happened in Bristol. I think a lot of people in Bristol thought he did lots of good things for the city, and we don't really want to think about where the money came from. Right, which but, is, yeah. But that's, but, so it's a slightly different case than either the Confederate ones or than the statues of, of Cecil Rhodes, you know, the, the great imperialist of, you know, in South Africa for a long time that, you know, there's a university named after him and other things, and there's been a movement in South Africa, mainly among students, but certainly supported by many people or their elders to uh, to tear, you know, to change the name of Rhodes University and to tear down the statues of him. I think that, too, is a case where it's self-evidently the right thing to do to tear these statues down. The thing I would say, though, is, and I feel the same way about Leopold of the Belgian, that was a genocidaire, as we would say today. Uh, but, but, uh, but then when you, then you start getting to much harder cases where people had terrible attitudes, but did wonderful things. A good example is Gandhi. In Africa, there's considerable controversy over the many monuments that exist about Gandhi, particularly in South Africa, where after all he lived, because we know from Gandhi's correspondence and from biographies of him that he was an out-and-out racist toward black people. So, okay, what do you do about that? What do you do about the Gandhi statue in Unions in Union Square in New York, which was, by the way, spray-painted during the demonstrations, presumably out of recognition that now, do you do you approve of that? Because after all, Gandhi is the, the figure of liberation of the Indian subcontinent. He is the most important single figure of the of the long overdue independence of India. It's liberation from tyrannical British imperial rule. So he's both a racist, hates blacks, as he makes clear all the time in his correspondence, and he is absolutely legitimately someone who does, who is the leader of this absolutely great thing, which is securing India's liberation. How do you do that? Do you just, you're going to have statues of this guy in India, but you can't have them in Africa. 
you say he's a bad guy, even if he did a good thing, which tends to be the view that people have. Many people want some of the Churchill things to be torn down. That's what they would say. Churchill did save, I mean, the moderate version of this view is, yes, Churchill saved Britain from the Nazis, but he was also a vile racist and an oppressor of the working class and 27 other and imperialist and this and that. I mean, how do you how do you split that difference? And there are lots of people uh, who have statues erected to them who uh, did that. I take you, you know, I'll give you a cause on the other side where you were talking about the Confederacy before. There are a lot of statues to General Sherman, William T. Sherman, who was a, a Union general, a federal general, during the, the American Civil War, who basically is... Uh, his army committed an unbelievable number of war crimes as it basically burned its way through the state of Georgia. I mean, Sherman even said things like, we shall visit on the civilian population all the horrors of war. He was quite frank about it. So he was probably the best single general, or at least one of the two or three best single generals, depending on how you view Grant and Sheridan, uh, in the federal army. He was also, by modern standards, a war criminal. So should you have statue to Sherman, or should you tear that down along with Robert E. Lee and Braxton Bragg? And, there'd, there'd be very few, very few statues standing. That's um, the problem. Yeah, that, that, because that's it, and, and it, I, I want to I want to change the conversation slightly, uh, more than slightly actually, and talk to you about someone that. I really, really did not know until I was preparing to speak with you that you had been in such close proximity with as a young man. Do you know who I'm about to say? I'll tell you. Is, is Ivan Illich, um, yeah, uh, who, who served for you, as you say, as, as a, an intellectual model. I, I, I feel that speaking of memory and forgetting, I I don't know how many of our listeners will know who Ivan Illich is, or they might know who Ivan Illich is as a character in a Tolstoy. Yes, in a Tolstoy. But, but uh, I met Ivan as well and, and will never forget him. I mean, I think one, one never did forget him when one met him. Why, no. why did, I mean, maybe you can very briefly tell people who he was, why he, yeah. met, why he mattered to you, and perhaps why he might matter to you now uh, in the present moment, if, if that is well, my, the case. My life was, I mean, Ivan Illich was a, a Catholic social thinker, a priest, uh, originally from uh, the Dalmatian coast of the former Yugoslavia, and uh, who a, went to... A Greece Jesuit. A Jesuit, and he was a... Uh, I wrote it, by the way, just parenthetically, of the only real memoir of someone I've known that I ever wrote, except my mother's death, I suppose, but, but, uh, uh, if you count that, uh, but, um, the, the, but I mean, memory, you know, kind of evocation of a character. Um, I, he was a social thinker. He was a kind of radical. I mean, he was thought to be very radical. I mean, there are people who are, I think completely forgotten by the young, but for example, you know, the former, Governor of California, Jerry Brown, was very close to Illich. Was in Illich had a center in Cuernavaca, Mexico, for many years, 
and Jerry Brown was down there a lot. And and, and I I went to to Oakland to to Jerry Brown's home, where uh, Ivan Illich spent a weekend, and we yeah, we were all were to, we, we, were, we were all together there talking, you know, about the future or the non-future yeah. of education. Yeah, Ivan wrote a book called "Deschooling Society," where he basically said education. In, I mean, to put it very, very crudely, should I stop being both, both hierarchical and so chronological that it's that just putting people in a kind of forcing house of schools from the age of five to the age of 25 is, is a huge mistake uh, in human terms. And therefore he called on it. I mean, he was a great critic of bureaucracies and priesthoods. It's sort of interesting for a priest. He wrote a book called Medical Nemesis, which I helped him work on. I was one of his 4,000 secretaries. I, this was mostly before the computer. I dropped out of the... He was like a kind of hyper figure. He would go to New York or London or Berlin or wherever, and he'd tell all the young people to simply leave and come work for him. But I did. I dropped out of Amherst College and drove to Mexico to work for him and spent half a year doing just that. Um, I mean, to some extent, he's... My parents were both very high-powered people, but my first independent intellectual life was in this strange version of the Catholic left, although how far we would call Ivan a person of the left, as opposed to simply a radical or an iconoclast, is, is debatable. But I think he's a model in being willing to rethink everything, to not take any established order For granted, which doesn't mean tearing it down with nothing to replace it, by the way. He was the opposite of a nihilist, or, and certainly the opposite of a person who thought, well, if you just tear things down, something better will replace them. He certainly knew in his skin how bad things could get. His mother, in fact, was a Jew, and they were, so during the war, he's of a generation, uh, he, was, he would have been a, a, a teenager at the beginning and they all survived but he understood very well how bad things can get I mean people say uh, you know things are at their worst whether it's Trump or this or that but uh, the, the, the stark truth is things things can get better but they can also get a lot worse than we imagine uh, even you know Nazi Germany the, you know the, the sort of example that in some sense is out of bounds because it's thought to be too extreme. I mean, of course it could have gotten worse. Germany could have won the war. They came pretty close. Um, so I don't think Illich thought that for a second, but he had really radical and interesting ideas to, to think through all of our modern secular priesthoods, which are what he was going after in most of his life. Eventually the center was closed down and he spent the last years of his life teaching at the university in Bremen. Hello? Yeah, David. No, I, 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 it took me a moment. It took me a moment. Uh, also, I was just remembering, remembering him, remembering that first extraordinary line from Medical Nemesis, which I'll quote from memory, something like, the medical establishment is a threat for, to health. I mean, he was so, so, uh, su well, such, an such an amazing man. He had the courage of his convictions, too. I mean, one must say that Ivan, I, it was diagnosed when I was working for him in Mexico. He he had a benign brain 
a tumor of the jaw, of the face. And it was benign. Therefore, it could have been Cured. removed. And he decided to live up to those principles. And he used to say, I'm not dying from this tumor. I'm living with this tumor. But of course, eventually, he was in agony. He used to, as you may remember, yeah. the last seven or eight years was I smoked opium nonstop. Um, I remember smoking with him in New York and boy, the kick. Uh, <laughs> and what, I mean, and I, I had three pups and he was puffing away. Um, but he was in agony. But he stuck to his principles and, and uh, you know, on a selfish level because he probably would have lived a lot longer. I, I wish he hadn't, but he, he did. Um, but he was a really radical thinker, which, and a lot of people say they're radical thinkers, but not that many actually are. David, um, my goodness, uh, our, our enemy here is time. I had so many more things I wanted to talk to you about your time as an editor, uh, working with people like Joseph Brodsky and Philip Ross and Marguerite Yourcenar and, and so many others. Um, also your, your love of poetry, that will all be for another time. For now, I feel that the the little the little uh, snippet you gave us of Ivan Illich, someone who lives according to their principles to the very end, will serve us well as a, a way of, of bidding farewell. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. And I'm so happy that that you 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 kicked this this pandemic. And um, I hope you you stay safe now. Thank you. And and you. And you. I'm glad to talk to you, Paul. I'm very glad to talk to you. Bye-bye, David. Bye-bye. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com slash support.